With that, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 as we draw near to our journey here with the Jewish Christians, as the writer of the book of Hebrews now begins to wind this book up. So very, very important, as we've seen all of these comparative things throughout the book of Hebrews, the the better covenant that Jesus is, the better sacrifice that Jesus is, the the more excellent way that Jesus is. And, And in fact, all things pertaining to everything you can think about in an eternal sense, Jesus is the culmination of God's plan for mankind, and thereby he is the very best of everything that we hope to attain in our relationship with God. And so tonight, we kind of begin to wind down towards the end. We have one more chapter after tonight, and we're moving on to the book of Daniel, uh, which I'm very excited about, and I pray that we'll get a a few more of the the brothers and sisters uh, to to get excited about that one, because we're in a pivotal time uh, in our nation's history, and and certainly we're going to see some parallels between this incredible uh, amazingly uh, brave young man, Daniel, as he is unafraid to go into the houses of the, the great king and speak his mind in the Lord Jesus. And so we're going there next. In the meantime, probably another three studies, including tonight here in the book of Hebrews. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. And we're going to pray in preparation for tomorrow as well. Father God, Lord, we recognize that you alone build up kingdoms and you tear down kingdoms. And Lord, you have anointed the United States of America for 200 and nearly 50 years. Uh, Lord, to really be a beacon for your word and for salvation in Christ Jesus. Regardless of the naysayers, we were founded by men who largely believed in the principles laid out in your word. And we for many, many, many years, Lord, followed those principles rather closely. And yet in the last 50 years or so, Lord, we we admit, we confess, we have turned our back on you. We've begun to travel down the road that's described here in Hebrews chapter 12 and pictured in a a very carnal man named Esau. And Father, we pray that, that you would cause this nation to wake up, to arise from its slumber, to go to the voting booth and to vote for a godly ruler. And Lord, we we admit that it's a difficult choice, but we also understand that there uh, is a perfect plan that you have, and we pray that it would come forth, uh, Lord, for the benefit of the nation and for the benefit of the world and us as citizens of it. But most importantly, Lord, that we would vote with kingdom views in mind. Lord, that we would really see this as an opportunity for us to Uh, have godly rulers, which your word declares if we have them, we rejoice. And if we don't, we groan. And Lord, it is our responsibility. And so, Lord, uh, specifically, we ask that you would uh, cause the church to wake from its slumber. Lord, help us to to repeal uh, abortion on demand. Lord, help us to get rid of this unbelievable debt that waits on every single person in this nation. Lord, an unsustainable debt. Lord, help us to take care of the poor, to care about the widows and the orphans, the things that uh, you care about, God. And so we pray that as we begin to pray tomorrow morning and pray throughout the day, uh, that you would hear our prayers, O Lord, from heaven and answer them according to your will. 
And as we study your word tonight, Lord, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear as your spirit speaks to us. And Lord, we pray for those that have come tonight and they're, they're, they're weighted down. Lord, they've been burdened by this world, this life. We pray that you would lift them up, cause them to see you, Jesus, in a fresh way. Lord, that we would remember your great love for us, wherein you loved us to the end. You went to the cross to prove that. And so, God, we give you this time we have left tonight for you to use it, for you to speak. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 16, here in Hebrews 12, we're going to take just a half a step back because it sets the stage for what lies ahead. And it says there, lest there be any fornicator or sexually immoral or profane person like Esau. And we covered last time what really I believe is one of the things that is absolutely rotting this nation. And that's the overt perversion that exists in our country and an attention to human sexuality like God never intended. And I believe that that part we covered well. But the next thing that said is a profane person like Esau. And it helps to have an understanding here of the original language, the original intent of the author of the book of Hebrews, because he uses a Greek word here, um, bebelos. And bebelos can be translated to a lot of different English words. But what it means to you and I is one that is something that I think we can all identify with. It actually means worldly or carnal. A worldly or carnal person like Esau. Your Bible may have profane. It may say godless. It may say irreligious. But the two best definitions for it in English are worldly or carnal. And that is something we need to talk about because worldliness and carnality is a bane to the church. And when the church is indistinguishable from the world, the world has no reason to turn to Jesus. And one of the reasons that people have such a tough time coming to Christ in the world that we live in is because the church doesn't look like Jesus. The church looks like the world. The church does the same things the world does. The church uses the same principles and practice as the world. The church doesn't look different than the world. And because of that, people look and they say, why? There are just as many drunkards in the church as there is at a football game. There are just as many fornicators in the church as there are in any strip club. There are just as many vile, vain materially motivated people in the church as there are anywhere else. And so the condition really is going to be drawn here that as children of grace, as we have access to God the Father through Jesus the Son, as the door has been flung wide open, as we worship the Lord, we can come into His presence. But He wants us coming into His presence looking like his kids, not like we just spent last week in the hog farm. It is really important that we grasp this fact because I think a lot of the church has gotten the wrong impression of the grace of God. And the grace of God has become, in essence, a trump card. 
I can't tell you how many times I have people, well, you know, God's grace will just cover it. I can't find a single verse that says that God's grace covers open rebellion and sin. Not one. Is it sufficient? Absolutely. But is it applied when it's in God's face? When it's treading on the Lord himself? When someone chooses a sinful lifestyle is contrary to the, the words of Scripture? When we know what it says and we don't do it, does grace actually cover that? And I say to you, I don't believe Scripture teaches it does. Does that necessarily mean that you forfeit your salvation? Not necessarily, but I can tell you this. You absolutely don't have God's blessing. You absolutely will not walk in peace. You absolutely will not have his hand upon you. The Holy Spirit will cease working in your life. You will not hear the voice of God. And Scripture plainly declares in, the, declares in the book of Isaiah that sin has separated us so that he does not, hear me well, does not hear our prayers. We need to get ourselves in that place that we understand that God's standards are holiness. It's not filthiness. And so he says, a profane, worldly, godless carnal person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now the spiritual implications of this are quite clear. Do you really want to trade sin for the righteousness of God? That's the actual analogy. Do you want to trade what's behind door number one that is the world for that which is the kingdom and the glory and the power of God forever and ever and ever? You see, the, the picture here is that Esau said, you know what, I'm so concerned about my stomach, I don't really care if it cost me my firstborn status. I don't care what i got to give up as long as I get to keep my sin, as long as I get to do what I want. I don't care. That's the world. That's what happens when we stop listening to God and we start listening to the voice of the world. For you know afterward that when he wanted to inherit the blessing, because remember, he had a change of heart, amen? He had a change of mind. I'm not sure it was a change of heart. Let me rephrase that. He had a change of mind. And it seems to indicate that in the story of Jacob and Esau, that what Esau saw was, hey, I'm going to lose out. And there comes a point in time when God said, you had your chance. This is a difficult verse. Because it really puts us on notice from God. Don't mess with them. You had your chance. You could have kept your birthright. It was right there in your grasp. It was available to you. Matter of fact, I gave it to you. But you wanted to trade it for a bowl of bean stew. You wanted to trade it for some sinful behavior, some habit, something that you thought was going to satisfy you but never can. And this is a picture of those who claim the name of Christ while thinking they can do anything with His holiness. And Scripture doesn't teach that. When he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Hey, wait a second, Dad. Wait, I, I mean, I, I, I've changed my mind. I don't really like what I'm getting now. I wonder how many people on Judgment Day, having heard the good news of the gospel, having seen and tasted the grace of God, remember those tough verses in chapter 6 and chapter 10? 
having tasted of the good things of God, been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. I wonder how many people standing there before the throne of God saying, well, wait a second. I don't like what I'm getting here. It's too late. That's why I have such a, a tough time sometimes when people will come to me and say, well, you know, I think ultimately God just works it out in the afterlife. They always use the term afterlife or the hereafter. And I will, I will say to them, I want you to find me a single verse in the entire Bible that backs up what you just said. Give me one. And nobody's ever found one. I'll tell you something, there isn't one. This life is the life we get to work these things out before the Lord. This life is where you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This life is the life that God wants us to lead that says, by our works, remember what James said, so we're not, we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. But James, putting that into perspective, said this, said, faith without works is dead. There in chapter 1, verse 22. Faith without works is dead. If saving faith doesn't produce works of righteousness, I'm not judging your salvation. You should judge your salvation. You should look at your own life. We should look at our lives. And you can look at anybody else's life whose standards, in essence, are the standards of the world and say, you got a problem with God. You don't have a problem with me. I'm not judging you. You're judging yourself. Because faith without works is dead. And he goes on to say, in fact... I will show you my faith by my works. That the result of us knowing the Lord Jesus is that we start to act like him and talk like him and walk like him and have concerns like him and cares like him and love like him. And we start to tell the world about Jesus without knowing a single scripture because our lives are so guided and guarded by his spirit that ultimately people look at our lives and go, that's not a profane, that's not a carnal person, that's one of God's kids, and I can tell by the way they live their life. He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And I don't want to belabor this, but I do want you to see that this sets the stage for what follows. You see, the choice is ours. Always has been. That's why Scripture tells us, choose this day whom you will serve. Joshua said, as for me and my house will serve the Lord. Notice the emphasis on the serving part. That there would actually be something that comes out of your life that indicates that you really love the Lord. Hatred, anger, bitterness, vile speech, destructive behaviors. Those things don't say a thing about Jesus. Those are dangerous things in the life of a supposed believer. They should cause us pause. And I think what's really being said here is that in the life of Esau, he was thinking with his bodily appetites, he was thinking with his stomach, he was thinking with his, in essence, carnal nature, as opposed to the new spirit that should be dwelling in him. And obviously that's an Old Testament example 
And, of course, there wasn't salvation at that time, but there was the opportunity to walk in the righteous ways of the Lord. And he says, I don't want to do it. And what is actually said here is this. After that change of mind, it was too late. He'd already walked so far down that road that there wasn't any turning back. The time was over. The Spirit of God had stopped moving, in essence, in his life, if you want to look at it in a New Testament way. It is absolutely important that we recognize that as believers, we are to live lives of righteousness. Now, having said all that, none of us are perfect. All of us still fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us are saved by the grace of God. We're not saved by works. We're never going to get to heaven because we were just overtly good. But if we are God's kids, there should be a marked change in the way we live our lives. It should be visible. And if it's not visible, the first person that should care about it is the person who names the name of Christ in whom it's not visible. It should scare the daylights out of you. If you can walk in sin, if you can flirt with sin, if you have no conviction of the Holy Spirit, if your life ceases to get input from on high because you're so buried in the trash of this earth, you need to take a real deep breath and immediately repent and turn away. Because Scripture declares... But there comes a point in time when God just says, you want it, you got it. I'm not going to force you. If you don't want to fear God, remember our text from last time? Then you need to do what he says. If you don't do what he says, then you will have fear. So in essence, obedience is a large part of us not fearing the Lord in a, in a way of fearing what he will do or what he will say or how he will act. In other words, Paul put it this way. He said, my conscience is clean. I have nothing in and of myself to convict myself. I know that when I stand before God, there isn't going to be some glaring thing in my life that all of a sudden everybody else is going to see. I knew it was there, but they didn't know it was there, and God's going to go, yeah, but what about this? It won't happen. And so I don't have fear. We need to evaluate the long-term effects of our decisions and our actions and beware because impulsiveness can create life-altering circumstances and consequences. Verse 18, now that you're all scared. You're not supposed to be scared. You walk with Jesus, it's all good, amen? amen? Family of God, I can tell you emphatically. There was a time in my life when I was backslidden. And Connie and I had walked with the Lord, and we got married in our early years of marriage. We are walking with Jesus. And we walked away from the Lord for a period of time. I dwelled in absolute, agonizing fear. Absolutely agonizing fear. Holy Spirit's going, you knucklehead, you dummy, what are you doing? Don't do that. Get out of there. Stop. Now, praise God that one day 
no, you really shouldn't pull the trigger on that gun because that's going to end your life and you probably don't want to go meet Jesus the way you've been living. And so the Holy Spirit speaks and says, no, you just need to change, Jeff. Well, you can still change. And so I changed. So the difference between now and then, huge. Because then it was like, I couldn't have told you if I was going to heaven or not. Now, looking back, I can tell you, I was saved. But I wasn't walking with the Lord. But there's no more uncomfortable place to be than a Christian who's in open rebellion to what God's Word plainly declares. Because you have no peace. And because God loves us, He's not going to let us have any peace. And in fact, very often, those things will continue to get worse and worse. Do what he says. Verse 18, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, to gloom, to storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. And I'm reading from the New International Version there for emphasis. That's not us anymore. That was exactly where the Jews had come from. They stood at the bottom of of Mount Sinai and trembled. And you and I stand at the bottom of Mount Zion saying, Thank you, God, for your grace. You see, one mountain was the mountain of fear. The other was the mountain of love. The mountain of love covers everything. The mountain of fear exposes everything. The law was never intended to save. It was intended to expose. It opened us up to our humanness, to where we'd look at it and go, man, how far have I fallen short of God's commands on my life? So I've shared with you so many times, I actually enjoy getting into conversations with people about the Ten Commandments. And they'll always, oh, that's Ten Commandments, oh, that's easy. Oh, really? How do you do with number one? Then I'll ask them what number two is, and they're like, well, I'm not sure. I said, so you're okay keeping something you don't even know what they are? I said, number one is thou shalt have no other gods before me, and you will not make a graven image of me. So anything that's in your life that replaces God, you've broken the first one. Relationships, money, power, you name it. Stick something in there, you're in trouble with God. Most people don't get past number one. It's because they weren't intended to save. They were intended to expose. You're right, Lord. I worship money. You're right, Lord. I worship power. You're right, Lord. I, I worship impressions of other people. You're right, Lord. I worship myself. I'm my own God. How many people is that true about today? You, you see, when the Hebrews under the Old Covenant looked at Mount Sinai, they were trembling in fear. The best among them, Moses, hear this well. The best among them, Moses, the one who parted the Red Sea, the one who struck the rock and water poured forth, the one who threw the tree into the bitter springs at Marah and it became sweet, the one who commanded that the 
manna would come and the quail would come, great and mighty Moses trembled in fear. The one who, the only one who's even ever seen the shadow of God's presence said, I'm scared to death of that stupid mountain because of what it represents. We haven't come to that. Fire, darkness, gloom. Exodus chapter 19 reminds us that the Lord's presence was actually on Mount Sinai, and that was the reason that it was, it was covered in cloud. The top half, you couldn't see it. Because if anyone standing at the bottom could actually get a glimpse of God, it would have killed him. His holiness would have slaughtered the entire nation. And so his grace, he covers the mountain with a cloud. But they can hear it. They can hear the thundering. They can see the flashes of lightning. You see, fear caused the people to beg Moses, the lone mediator, we don't want to hear it anymore. God doesn't want you to fear him. He has better things for you. He has better things for me. Praise God. That's what grace is. It's the better thing. It's the better covenant. Amen? The old covenant of law, guess what? You're all going to hell. It's that simple. Grace doesn't come. Abraham wouldn't have made it to heaven. David wouldn't have made it to heaven. Nobody makes it to heaven without grace. I'm actually grateful for that. Because if there had ever been a shining example of somebody who could have kept the Ten Commandments wholly and completely, then one could say that you could be saved by works. And you can't. Jesus is the one and only mediator of the new covenant. You don't have to be afraid of approaching the mountain of God's grace because his arms are open wide. You're you're not standing at the bottom of Mount Sinai going, man, I hope he doesn't fry me. You're you're standing at at the foot of the cross going, thank you, Jesus, for your grace and your mercy. Your unmerited favor poured out upon me. And the interesting thing is with Mount Zion, Mount Zion is actually also Mount Moriah of the Old Old Testament. And Mount Moriah of the Old Testament is the place that Abraham took Isaac to offer him up as a sacrifice. Amen. You know what the base of Mount Moriah is? It's Golgotha. So in essence, Jesus put himself in the place of Isaac on Mount Moriah and said, no problem. That's why Isaac got to go free, by the way. I'll make myself a sacrifice. Don't kill the lad, Abraham. It's not necessary. I got that covered. So you don't need to fear the mountain. Verse 22. But you, instead of Mount Sinai, but you, instead of thundering and righteousness and crazy thoughts of you ever glimpse God, you're going to be dead. But you, because of the new covenant, because of the blood of Christ, Because of his sacrifice, because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of his great love, Scripture declares, wherein he loved you, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But you, who believe that, speaking to the Jewish Christians, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, to the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to the God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. You see, you come to a different mountain, a way different mountain. 
a mountain that's got a company of angels saying, come on up. Weather's fine up here. Come on home. All you who are heavy laden, burdened, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. He wasn't up there, woo. We're up here. Why don't you join us? Very different mountain to Jesus. Notice who's at the top of that mountain. God the Father in all of His holiness, without the propitiation of our sins in Jesus, was at the top of Mount Sinai. Jesus hadn't died yet. Jesus hadn't been raised yet. The sacrifice had not been made. The price had not been paid. That's what was going on with Mount Sinai. Not so with Mount Zion. Right there in the middle of all of those angels, the church of the firstborn, I love that. The the Greek word that's used there is prototokos. Preeminent one. One of one. The church of the one of one. How awesome is that? The church of the one Lord, the one God, the one Savior, the Ephesians 4, one God, Lord over all. That one God. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood didn't save anybody, amen? Didn't save anybody. Nobody was saved because Abel's blood got spilled. Anybody who died out, you could have gone, well, you know, I'm of the cult of Abel. We worship Abel. You know, that rotten Cain. I'm not a Cainite. I'm an Abelite. You still perish and gone to hell. No Jesus, you're still in trouble. And the picture is this. It doesn't matter who's else, who, uh, what other blood gets spilt. Doesn't need to be your blood. It can't be somebody else's blood. There won't be another sacrifice that's going to work to get you into heaven. There was exactly one, and that family described as the church of the firstborn, those who were of the prototypical one, Jesus. It's the only one. It's the only way. That's why John fourteen six says what it says. Jesus said, I, the self-sufficient one, the one who, there is none like me, there won't be any after me, there was none before me, I and I alone am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Amen. So when you start looking at this from a Jewish perspective, see, they feared God. They understood his holiness. They probably had, you know, the historical record, at least the oral tradition of, yeah, you know, my great grandfather's mother's uncle's sister's cousin's aunt, four times removed, was in the wilderness. And she told my grandfather the stories about what it was like to stand at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And Jesus is saying, you can forget all that. You just need to come to me. Let me have your burdens. Let me have your weight. Let me have your cares and your concerns. Scripture says, for he cares for you. He actually cares for us. You see, the God of the Old Testament, 
There are times when you kind of wonder whether he actually cared or not, because his holiness was so severe. You know, go touch the mountain, you die. Animal goes over there, and, you know, your poor goat walks halfway up the mountain. It barbecue. And Jesus is saying, come on up. It's okay. I want you to be with me. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. There's two things you need to learn from that verse. Number one is, he is speaking and he loves you. Jesus is saying, come. Don't be afraid. Come. Take you just the way you are. But the flip side of God's grace is, he said, come. There isn't going to be another way. There's not going to be an option B. You're not going to wake up one morning and, oh, you can be saved by owning shares of Microsoft. You can be saved as long as you make over $110,000 a year and you give at least 5% to a church. You can be saved because you haven't said a swear word in three weeks. You can be saved because you don't smoke, drink, or use a spittoon. Not going to happen. Because he said come, the only option is to come. You don't have a choice. You can either come or not. That's it. There's no other option. Option A, salvation by grace through faith. Option B is you get to pay your own way. That won't be good when you stand before a holy God. All your Microsoft stock, not going to do a thing. All your giving, not going to do a thing. All your good works, not going to do a thing. Because he's only going to ask one question, what did you do with Jesus? How did you respond to the gospel, the good news? Don't refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, think about this. God was literally speaking to Moses. Moses goes up, has a chat with God. Moses comes back down. He's got his head draped so that the glory doesn't wipe anybody out, so that when it begins to fade, nobody notices. They actually had a guy who literally went and spoke to God. And they didn't like what he had to say. Think of this. Moses got a first-hand word from the Lord himself. And people didn't like it. What do you think's going to happen when that word comes through his written word? It isn't nobody, nobody on this earth, Benny Hinn can say it all day long if he wants to. I heard from God. He didn't actually go talk to God. Moses did. And they didn't believe him. They didn't like what he had to say. They didn't escape. He didn't enter the promised land because they wouldn't listen to what God had to say. All those people died in the wilderness, including Moses. How much more will we not escape when we turn away who, from him who speaks from heaven? Because the one speaking from heaven speaking by grace, amen? He's not shouting down. He wasn't laying down commandments. He gave us one commandment. 
Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and it works out on earth by loving your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's the commandment. That's the new one. People can't even do that without Jesus. They won't do it consistently. They won't do it for very long. You think we're going to escape if we turn away from the one who speaks from heaven by grace and through faith? The answer is no. Whose voice then shook the earth? But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shall shake the earth, but also heaven. And now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are shaken as the things that are made and the things which cannot be shaken will remain. Family of God. There's going to come a time when God shakes this earth again. But when he does it, there's going to be two types of people. There's going to be saints and there's going to be ain'ts. There's going to be sheep and there's going to be goats. There's going to be the saved and the damned. And when the shaking starts, you're either part of the part that doesn't shake or you're part of the part that goes away and no longer exists. That's why Jesus said there are two roads. There's one that's broad that leads to destruction. There's one that's narrow that leads unto righteousness. One few people find. The other is a lot of people on that road. That's why you can log on to AOL and you can look at the news flash. Oh, well, look, you know, it says now that uh, you can absolutely be a homosexual and be saved. Matter of fact, you can be a pastor. It's not what God's Word says. And where this started was, if you're really saved, you do what He says. Don't refuse Him who speaks. You know why it says that? That's for you to know that you're one of God's kids. People often ask me, what's the, what's the point of works? It's for you to know that you're one of God's kids. God already knows. He's known before the foundations of the world. But you have assurance when you abide. You walk around like, I'm one of God's kids. Or you can walk around, I don't really know. I've been doing everything I'm not supposed to do. I don't really know. It's a scary place to be when everything starts shaking. You ever noticed how many times, and most of you that walk with the Lord, when you have friends and family whose lives start to fall apart, they'll totally disrespect you when they don't need you. But when things start to shake, guess who they come to? They always come to the people that know Jesus. It's because ultimately we aren't going to get moved. Not going to be shaken. When the shaking happens, we're going to be in heaven. And now this, this yet, as those things will be shaken, those things that are his will remain. And therefore, since we are receiving the kingdom, which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is an all-consuming fire. You see, what it's really saying is, the difference between the saints and the ain'ts the sheep and the goats, the saved and the lost, is born out in this life by how we live our lives. And if you really love the Lord, then your life ought to indicate that you really love the Lord. It doesn't mean that's how you got saved. That means that you know that you are saved 
when things start to change. You see these two mountains that are used here. Basically, they're the two covenants. The old covenant and the new. One the law, one grace. One works, one God's mercy. You know, as I, as I age, I, I'm absolutely not getting to heaven without God's grace. But you know what I'm actually, on a daily basis, more thankful for? I'm more thankful for His mercy. Because His mercy is He does not give me what I deserve. He gives me what I do not deserve. By His grace, I receive unmerited favor. In other words, He just loves me because of Jesus. But I'm really thankful for His mercy. Because I could still not get His mercy. He would be absolutely correct to judge everything I do. But part of His grace is His mercy being poured out upon us. Because we have His unmerited favor, He gives us mercy. He looks at us as His kids and He goes, Oh, my dumb kids. Those of you that have kids, you know exactly what I'm saying. Because you're not going to kick your kids out of your family. I mean, you may think about it every once in a while, but you're not actually going to do it. And there are your kids, and you're like, I know I raised you better than that. We've already been down this road. I've told you this a hundred times already. All your parents are shaking your heads going, yep, exactly what I do. I know you know better. And you did it anyway. And then they look at you like, I'm sorry. And their little lip starts to quiver. And it's just like God. God looks at that and says, Oh, my kids, my kids, my kids. All right, I'm going to give you mercy. Because see, under the Old Testament law, your parents could stone you. wasn't a good deal. You wake up, you went out, you killed one of their prize oxen or something. Oh, let's kill him. Made you, we'll make another one just like you. I'm thankful for God's mercy. A man, he doesn't give me what I deserve. Hey, he looks at me and he goes, oh, Jeff. But I know you love me because you keep trying. And you, you, you've been doing better than you used to do. And he pours out that mercy upon us. And because of that, we can, we can stand in his presence joyfully with the angels, with the assembly of God, with that joyous worship. We, we don't need somebody to plead our case. So I've shared with you so many times, when you look at the Old Testament system of laws and festivals and feasts, man, what a horrible existence that must have been. Think about it. You had to have an intermediary. You could not go for yourself to God. It was not allowed. The furthest anybody could get was the courtyard if you were not a priest yourself. That was it. You could kind of watch what was happening at the altar of sacrifice and the bronze laver. You could be in that courtyard. If you were a Gentile, you couldn't even get that far. You had to stay in the court of the Gentiles. And ladies, I hate to tell you this, if you were a woman, outside of that, there was the court of women. Okay, I hope he does it right. I hope he doesn't forget part of the steps. 
hope he doesn't mess up and go to the lampstand before he goes to the table of showbread. Boy, I hope he makes it to the altar of incense and offers that prayer up for my family. I sure hope he slaughters the, the bull properly and takes the blood in and puts it on the horns of the altar and, and does it correctly. Because, man, if he croaks in there, I'm dead. Now you can go. Curtains open. The veil's torn. You can walk right in. Not because you're perfect. The one who died for you is perfect. He's opened it wide. He says, come on in. Come on up the mountain. Have a mountaintop experience. Got a few jillion angels up here. We're just singing, hanging out. Why? Because we're part of that firstborn family. God sees you in the precious blood of Jesus, clothed in righteousness. All the sin is taken out of your account and put into Jesus' account. And because he has full righteousness, it's dealt with. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. As scripture says it's buried in the depths of the sea. It's hidden so that God cannot see it. Hallelujah. Under the Old Testament... As soon as the high priest got done on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, as soon as he got done, your sins started piling up again. That moment, you're walking out through the multicolored gate. Yay! And you see the guy that owes you a couple of bucks. Hey, you owe me some money. Get over here. You speak unkindly to him. You go back to your little mud hut there in Jerusalem. You open this door, your neighbor's over there making a little bit too much noise in the middle of the night and throw your shoe at him or whatever. You're already in trouble with God again. The next Yom Kippur is a year later. And you better hope you don't go see God before then. You're in there offering, oh Lord, you're praying incessantly. You're straining the gnats out of your wine. Horrible. Not anymore. Come on up. Now the only judgment you're ever going to see, hear this well, the only judgment you're ever going to see is for the rewards that you'll receive in heaven. Your sin's been paid for. Dealt with. It's done. Next time you stand before the holy holy God that created you, it's going to be, well done, enter in, good and faithful servant, to my kingdom of rest. Because as verse 24 says, you've come to Jesus, who mediates the new covenant, which graciously forgives instead of crying out for vengeance as the blood of Abel did. Hallelujah. Man, blood of Abel still crying out today if it weren't cleansed by Jesus. Never was taken care of. Christ's death brought us peace and hope. The old covenants washed away. The new covenant stands. Mark chapter 13, 2 Peter 3, tell us there's going to come a day and time when this whole earth is going to get shaken right out of existence. Matter of fact, the entire universe one day is going to be rolled up as a scroll. 
You know, what's interesting is, is scientifically we now know that that's actually already in the process of happening. The universe is actually contracting. The theory is, of course, the Big Bang, that nothing became something that exploded and got very ordered. An explosion, as you well know, sends things furthest from the point of explosion the longer, longer it exists. It should constantly be moving away from wherever its center was. That's what an explosion does. We're now beginning to see the universe beginning to contract. One day, the Lord's going to say, it's done. Time for a new one. And those things that are in Christ will last. They're eternal. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, as Revelation 19 through 22 described for us. Now, what an incredible picture. You ever thought about what it's going to look like to be standing on earth as the new Jerusalem descends from heaven? 1,200 square miles at the base. All of a sudden, wow, nice digs. The Lord's going to take care of everything that doesn't meet his standards one day. And right now, because we're in him, we don't have to worry about that shaking. We can go to the mountain anytime we want. And therefore, verse 28 says, Since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe. You see, we can just simply thank the Lord. Sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm worshiping, one of the things that happens to me is I'm just thanking God. I'm saying, Lord, the, the fact that you could somehow find my voice, these songs, us, that this somehow brings you a smile, that this is praiseworthy of you, that, that we can actually say to you, we don't really have words that can communicate it, so I'm just pouring out my heart to you. That reverence, that awe, it's like, God, only you are worthy of this. That's why when, if you go to a, a concert of any kind, it, it's actually kind of it's kind of sad, and it's also kind of funny simultaneously. And here are these people just throwing themselves at the, you know, those first four or five rows of these star acts, you know. Yeah, I was in the first five rows of a Bon Jovi concert, you know. Guys are out there crowd surfing. Until they let go of you and you flop on your back like a dead fish. But they're all screaming and making complete idiots out of themselves. Absolute maroons. Just, oh, he's so awesome. Then you read the following day in the paper how they beat their wives or, you know, they're absolutely rotten to the core human beings. And you go, I, I wouldn't made an idiot out of myself for that. You will never be embarrassed by your king. You will never regret worshiping the Lord at his holy mountain. You'll, you'll never one day wake up, man, I can't believe I worshipped so much. 
You, you use the same analogy for professional sports. It's, it's ridiculous. I can't tell you how many football games I came away, Charger games I came away from. I couldn't speak for two days. Wouldn't it be awesome if the body of Christ was so in love with Jesus that we couldn't speak because we worshipped ourselves into hoarseness? It's worth doing. The carnal people like Esau, not so much. And it tells us why here at the very end. For our God is a consuming fire. And it doesn't say that at the end to scare us. It just reminds us of God's character and nature. Because he is absolutely pure, absolutely holy, everything in his presence will be one day tested to see what it's made of. And if it's of the Lord, it remains. And if it's not of the Lord, it goes away. The chaff will be winnowed. You'll be able to tell the wheat from the tares, the gold from the dross, all those pictures that you find in Scripture. Our God is an all-consuming fire. It really says our God is a perfect test of holiness, is what it actually says. He is a perfect test of holiness. And because he's a perfect test of holiness, only holiness can stand in his presence. Thank the Lord that that is because of Jesus that we can do that. It won't be because of you. It won't be because of me. It won't be because of Calvary Chapel. It won't be because of anything but Jesus. But thankfully, because it is based on Jesus, anybody who wants it can have it. You just simply say, yes, Lord. We don't control God. God controls us. We don't measure God. God measures us. God will one day reward us openly for those things that have been done that are of praiseworthy things here in this life. That's a fact. But he's also going to burn up the dross. I don't know about you. I'd kind of like to have a few crowns to throw at Jesus' feet. I'd like to be able to say, Lord, this has all been about you. Here it is. I've only got two of them, but they're yours. And so if you've ever struggled with what God thinks of you, the good news is better things lie ahead. God's the God of do-overs. He's the God of second chances. And as long as His Spirit speaks and you're listening, then tomorrow can be a better day. Tomorrow can be an awesome day, and the day after even better than that one. And one day the Lord's going to sound that trumpet, and the saints who are alive and remain are going to be called home to be with the Lord forevermore. And you'll never be shaken again. The best time to start practicing that is now. And I would pray that as the Lord works in our lives, that you'll have that confidence and that assurance as you abide in the Lord. You just go, Lord, I may not be perfect, but I know my life is pleasing to you. I, I may not have all my I's dotted and all my T's crossed, but I know I got a lot more dotted I's and T's crossed than I had last week. Now moving forward, doing what you've asked. 
forsaking the things that bind, letting go of the things that control. Because one day, when he starts shaking, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be upset by what it does to their little empires. But if you're in Jesus, you got nothing to fear. Amen? Better days lie ahead. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time tonight and your word. And Lord, I want to pray that, God, if there's somebody here tonight, maybe they're just struggling with their own self-worth, their own value. Lord, they've wondered what it is that you're doing with them on this earth. Lord, we know what your word declares about us, that your thoughts towards us are good. They're not evil, that you have a future and a hope for us. Lord, that you desire for us to walk in those good works. Your word declares there in Ephesians that you've created. Lord, that you have a plan for us that is good. And so, Lord, pray that because we can now come to the mountain of your holiness boldly, because we can ascend your holy hill boldly, because we can come to you because of the blood of the new covenant, that better way with better promises, that, God, you just encourage us, strengthen us, Lord. Take our fears and set them aside by your grace. Help us to walk with you. And, Lord, we just give you our lives again afresh and anew. Lord, just living sacrifices, take us and mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus, we pray. It's in his name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you, give you an awesome few days until we meet again on Sunday. Lest the Lord should come for his church, then we'll see you in heaven. Amen.